It's a nice looking, is that a ficus? No, that's a Diefenbachia. Oh, you got to keep that soil moist. Exactly. is the Green Majority, Canada's most oblique, sideways, and spleen-penetrating environmental radio show program on your CIUT 89.5 FM or your beautiful radio station in your community that just brings, knits everybody together like a little pocket sponge. Stefan knows what I'm talking about. I don't know what a pocket sponge is, but I know that when I was 17 and had mono, I couldn't do dance class for a month because we were worried about puncturing my spleen. I didn't realize that uh, mono weakened the surface of the spleen. I didn't even get mono because I was like making out with anybody. I got mono because um, I split a banana bread and chocolate milk with the same kid every day in English class. He also only had four fingers on his one hand. Or on your beautiful local community radio station, or on your podcast platform. Shout out Harbinger Network. My name is David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I am Lauren Latour. And um, if people are Harbinger listeners and fans of the pod via that way, and anybody is going to be in Ottawa for the Progress Summit hosted by Broadbent in a couple of weeks. Stefan and myself are going to be sitting on a panel with a bunch of other Harbinger podcast hosts. So like, that's a fun thing if that's the space you're going to be in. And I'm sure portions of it will be recorded and I'm sure portions of that will be put out probably on what's the name of Harbinger's like Harbinger spotlight. Yeah. On Harbinger spotlight. So anyway, if you're a podcast listener and you came to us that way and that's what you're interested in, that's a thing that's happening in a couple of weeks again yeah. at Broadbent's progress summit. And Sorry. Today, we have a very boring episode um, because I have no idea how the Canadian government works. And we're discussing policy. Stefan is interviewing Mr. David Camfield. Yes. An author who has written a book about the burning of the globe. I mean, it's called Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change. Right. And I listened to the first two seconds of that interview and he says, we're in a worrying place and we're heading to a more worrisome place. But we do get some, we get some hope. We get, we talk about social movements and, and where he finds hope in that interview. It's, I think we get some more positive, despite it starts dark. I, for one, know that the world is made of the eternal divine light of um, the ever-present love of the omniverse itself. So, so the, spleen, the spleen wall is weakened. By... When you have mono, yes, something right. like that. Or or it's like it becomes swollen and at risk of rupturing further. Right. All right. And we are going to discuss the federal government's new sustainable jobs plan and some climate news. And then Stefan will interview 
Mr. David Camfield, the author of that book that was just discussed. Yes. So I'm just going to quote Mr. Merton's Mr. Merton's Kirkwood from his article here about the jobs plan, and then you guys can say whatever you want. Obviously, it's not like I'm going to delete half the things you say. So the federal government has released its sustainable jobs plan, which provides, according to Hadrian's Merton's Kirkwood, is it Hadrian's? Is it Hadrian? Like the Hadrian, like the large Hadrian Collider. Um, no, that's a Hadron Collider. Um, Hadrian, oh. like the Roman Emperor. Right. Mr. Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood, writing for the Monitor, says the Sustainable Jobs Plan quote has very little new policy. Uh, Most of the actions are already underway or have already been budgeted for. However, this is the first time that all of the pieces have been mashed together into something resembling a comprehensive strategy. As such, the plan is really only creating the institutions needed to carry out policies that have already been stated. On getting the money uh, to transition our industries away from carbon, he writes, quote, Green industrial policy is the key missing piece in Canadian climate policy. Canada simply needs more investment, like $60 billion per year more investment, to achieve its net zero aspirations. The federal government created regional tables last year as an attempt to bridge that gap, but getting provincial governments and industry to the table has been challenging. At some point, the federal government needs to be prepared to step up with more public money or more heavy-handed policy to mobilize private capital. Quickly before I throw to you, Lawrence, I feel like this is a little bit more in your wheelhouse than mine. We are hoping to interview uh, Hadrian in a future episode to get a deeper understanding of how the act uh, of the act and how it all shakes out. But for Me- now, meaning you've sent him an email that he hasn't responded to. I sent it to him today. Affirmations in the morning mirror. We <laughs> will have Hadrian on the show. We will. We will. I am a good man. But for now, I'll just harp on the one thing that was drilled into me uh, when I studied environmental law which is basically because of the way that the divisions of power work in this country, the provinces hold almost all of the power to regulate and require decarbonization. The federal government can tax things, hence the carbon tax, or the not-so-carbon tax, as we've had a discussion on that previously. Um, And they can use their money to bribe the provinces to do what they want, a la healthcare. But without winning some court cases, those are likely going to be the two most powerful levers they have available. And so, as with seemingly uh, so much of the federal government's uh, promises, what we see here is a thought without enough oomph behind it to really see it through. And I'm not really sure what their strategy is outside of this. Like, is the idea simply say, we tried, but the provinces wouldn't let us? Because while I can empathize with that reality... It won't cut it on the international stage, nor be well-received by history. But to you, Lauren. Yeah, no, you say it's more so in my wheelhouse, and I mean it kind of is, but like I'm a bit of a, I'm a, bit of a dumb baby here, generally speaking. Um, yeah, this is, okay, so just to make it super clear, what released on Friday, um, and again, like the Friday before a long weekend, we love it when the feds bury policy like this. It's so annoying because then everybody scrambles to react. And you also know, it's like, how, how, how proud of this can you possibly be if you're like surreptitiously releasing it the Friday before? Anyway, they were as into this as John Tory was into resigning. But exactly. No, like it's yeah. Anyway, kind of not the point. Um, 
So this is like a plan for legislation that is going to be released. We have heard sometime after the Albertan election, but sometime before the house rises at the end of June. So sometime in June, most likely is when, is when the actual legislation is coming down the pike. So this is a plan for a plan from what I understand. Um, and based on the name folks knew it was, it was being called the sustainable jobs act and not necessarily the just transition act. So like, I don't actually think what came out on Friday really surprised anyone. Um, I think it maybe was like predictably disappointing just because like the scope is so small and we knew the scope was going to be small. As soon as they said, it's going to be a sustainable jobs plan. It's like, cool, 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 cool. You are taking this to be like the, you are, you are hitting like the bare minimum markers here. Um, for anybody who was hoping for this to be in any way, like the transformative societal, big well transition legislation like that's not what we're getting we're not getting our version of biden's inflation act or anything like that like hadrian lays out in his piece for the monitor which is a great publication that people should check out um published by the canadian center for policy alternatives uh this is underfunded and it doesn't actually dig that far into the transition part of of the just transition, like at all. Um, it, it mentions, um, and implies that CCUS will be a technology that's heavily relied on in order to make sure the oil and gas industry continues to produce petrochemicals are mentioned, blue hydrogens mentioned. So like, this is really low on the transition part of just transition. Um, and then when you're looking specifically at the jobs part, um, this is pulling off of knowledge that I've heard from other people, because I'm not going to lie, you, you, your girl didn't read the plan guys. Um, <laughs> I should, uh, for a large number of reasons, but I haven't actually sat down and like read the text. Something about the Canadian government website is just like, as soon as I start to scroll through the text, my eyes just glaze over. Um, and like the Jeopardy theme plays in my brain. There's a lot of stuff about job retraining within the plan, but there isn't, for instance, a lot about like pension bridging, for instance, or other ways of making sure that those workforces are taken care of. And again, the workforces in general are those workforces that are directly tied to the oil and gas industry. It's not getting into the care economy the way, the way that folks wish it would. It's not getting into kind of like alternative means of supporting our communities and, and, and really sort of like extrapolating out on the idea of what a fossil-free future might look like in so-called Canada. Again, we 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 maybe can't really fully wholeheartedly criticize it until until the actual legislation is released in June. But for now, it's sort of like wah, wah. Uh, what what we're seeing from labor unions, for instance, is that people are like, great, great start, happy this is here. You're finally putting something out after making this an election promise, but then also just transition legislation is something that, again, the federal government committed to via the Paris Agreement several years ago now. So like this is something that the government has had to come out with for a long time. And this is like the first step in them finally kind of like fulfilling that promise. And again, kind of kind of hitting the bare minimum. Yeah. And, and we'll get to this in this in the second news section that will be coming in a second, where it feels like the Canadian government is really invested in not having to do the transition part of the transition. And and that's not just the Canadian government. We actually see it almost everywhere in the world. And again, we'll dive in more later. But how common it seems to be to sort of tout new technologies and new 
production of renewable energies without ever sort of committing to actually phasing down the use of and production of fossil fuels, you sort of get this idea that it ends up being like, oh, well, let's do both, and somehow that will solve our problem, and that won't solve our problem. I don't know. Between that and again, back to like the lack of scope here, um, and the fact that they that they've called it the Sustainable Jobs Act as opposed to the Just Transition Act, it's like. I understand who they're trying to appeal to here and they're trying to appeal to Alberta here. And I mean, I get, I get on the surface, the logic of like, if Albertans want small government, we'll give them small government. We're not going to interfere too much in their practices. We're not going to call it the scary just transition. We'll call it sustainable jobs. And maybe they'll like us more that way. Maybe we can win them over, but it's like, I don't know. I would think if Albertans were shown a kind of like swing for the fences, look at how much money we're going to invest in your livelihoods. Look how much money we're going to invest in keeping your communities afloat and making them look like, I don't know. Nobody's like, oh, I shouldn't No, Nobody looks at Fort McMurray and is like, whoa, baby, that's a place I want to live. Like if, if, if they were actually making an effort to inject a bunch of money into building a green, into building, um, kind of like, I don't know, I, I hate to say green infrastructure because that has specific connotations to it. But like, you know what I mean? Like the, the big infrastructure plan we need. And this was kind of like the legislation that provides the 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 funding and the energy and the resources for that. Like, I would think you'd win over more hearts and minds in Alberta if you were, if you were, I don't know. Yeah. If, if you were displaying a little more ambition and a little more care and a little more um, gumption, is not really the right word, but you know what I mean? It's like, let's have a little more vision here. Let's give people something to get excited about. And this isn't anything that anybody's excited about when they had such an opportunity here. It's, it's, it's almost like the way it's like, had, had the liberal government really leaned into like build back better legislation, like that would have been such a great opportunity to like rally people around something and be like, look at what we're doing for you. Love us. And instead they're like, here, I, I'm, I'm mostly giving you what here, like be satisfied. Um, yeah. and it's like, it, it, you're not winning over the leftists with this. You're not winning over the Albertans with this. Who, who are you appeasing here? I yeah. truly don't know the, the, like the, the Southern Ontario liberal voters who were only kind of tuned into the conversation anyway. It, yeah, no, I, I, I that's, I, I think the, the constant problem with so much of these plans is that bare minimum is not inspiring and doesn't give you a vision of what the world could be, right? Like it doesn't communicate a vision at all. And so the people who want to take it in bad faith will, you know, accuse you of all sorts of things. And the people who want to defend you don't have enough meat on the bones to defend you. Like all you can say is like, well, they actually aren't doing anything. So it can't be bad for you because nothing's happening or you know, not enough is happening. And that's not a, you're not giving enough, uh, yeah, meat on the bones for them, for people to be, to be able to hold on to something and be able to be like, this matters because of this. And like, again, it's architecture. And so maybe eventually you get somewhere when architecture, like like government architecture and like is important, but yeah, I'm with you. You, you need us, you need some sort of vision. Yeah. And cause like, I mean, certainly between now and when the legislation drops in like late spring, early summer, that's quite a bit of runway for people to lobby, for people to push, for people to um, show that they want something a little more ambitious. 
um, how much those, those calls for, for more ambition will be heated. It's, it's hard to say, but then also like the reality also is, is that like, okay, if we know this isn't going to be the just transition act that we actually need and actually want, then, then that sort of opens up the movement's opportunity to just like, be like, okay, go back to the, like, give us, give us something new and different. Don't call it a just uh, sustainable jobs act. Don't even call it a just transition act, but there are a million more things that we want. Show us how you're going to give them to us. So like maybe, maybe this, this isn't the, this isn't the, the piece of legislation that, that the progressive movement pins their hopes and dreams to maybe it's like, okay, onward and upward what's next. Cause this isn't it. And we're going to do some climate news now. Where are we here? New research out of the University of California, Davis, was shared exclusively with The Guardian last month that models the resource needs of the United States if and as they transition to entirely electric cars, electric vehicles. The research finds that unless they begin to look at cities differently and get people out of cars, they will perpetuate global land theft in a rush for lithium and probably move too slowly to prevent us crossing the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming threshold. Nina Lakani writes, quote, Ambitious policies investing in mass transit, walkable towns and cities, and robust battery recycling in the U.S. would slash the amount of extra lithium required in 2050 by more than 90%. <clears throat> PNAS, uh, the Proceedings of the National... <laughs> Sorry, that's the acronym PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in America, that's the United States, has published a research paper in which the authors use artificial intelligence to predict that we will, we will cross the 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming by the early 2030s, and we have a 50-50 chance of crossing 2 degrees Celsius just a couple decades after that. In an article called We Are Greening Ourselves to Extinction, Vijay Kolonjavadi writes for Al Jazeera, <clears throat> we wrote for Al Jazeera last month, that over a decade ago, investment experts James Altucher and Douglas Sees advised investing in big pharmaceutical companies as a strategy to reap dividends from global pandemics. They also encouraged putting money into renewable energy systems while ramping up oil production. The authors were describing a strategy they called investing in the apocalypse. Today, quote, under the guise of taking action on the pandemic, billions of dollars have been poured into big pharma instead of public health uh, and policies aimed at preventing another global outbreak. The supposed energy transition has seen renewable energy production expanded, but there has been no indication that oil and gas are being substituted and ultimately phased out. Governments have rushed to put forward false solutions to the climate crisis, from the push to replace fuel engine vehicles with electric ones to so-called climate-smart agriculture to protected areas for nature conservation and massive tree-planting projects for carbon offsets. Colin Javadi says that these solutions amount to a policy of genocide. Yeah, so... We talk about this a bit in the interview with David Camfield later on in the show, and it relates a lot to what we just discussed about the Sustainable Jobs Act. Uh, but I think it's important, so I'll double okay, or maybe even triple down here. The issue that's being identified here with the, quote, greening ourselves into extinction 
is the idea that everything can be and should be solved by capitalism and investment rather than regulation and government involvement. It's one of the major issues we have with energy maximalists or technocrats who would argue that our problems can be entirely solved by by finding ways to make energy cheaper or other technology-based solutions, because that leads us to where we are now, a world where we have abundant supply of cheap renewable energy that could and is being harnessed, but fossil fuel use is basically stagnant. So while governments provide money for money to people to build renewables, they cannot now they cannot get now largely private utilities to get off coal and fossil fuels because they've given up that power. And the same can be said in the transportation sector. We've privatized most transport, and so the only lever is to provide tax breaks to the wealthy to buy electric vehicles. This reality also means that we're left with a system where the government is consistently subsidizing private industry, whether it's power utilities, electric vehicle manufacturers, or any other number of quote-unquote green technologies, without getting any assets or ongoing value back. It It may achieve some policy goals, but it does not build collective wealth or public infrastructure, both of which seems to be absolute musts if we look at the changes that are necessary. And so ultimately, I think that I think so. And so ultimately, I think if we as climate activists want to judge good policy, it should be through this lens. Does this policy create, support, or maintain public infrastructure? And does this policy build local, community, and collective wealth? If the answer is no to both, then we should see it for what it is a private, a private industry, uh, see what it is private industry subsidies which in some cases can be necessary, but it cannot be the primary lever we use if we want to see real change. <clears throat> Last two stories here. In Puerto Rico, an American natural gas company has been hired to take over all of the island's fossil fuel power plants. The deal was negotiated in secret and is meant to eventually privatize Puerto Rico's whole energy system. It's likely to make electricity more expensive for Puerto Ricans since the company can set its own prices. And it will also make it a lot harder for the island to meet its green energy goal of uh, 40% by 2025. And finally, here in Ontario, our power authority known as OPG was criticized last fall for issuing clean energy credits to Microsoft without any real details. Microsoft claims it will power its Ontario data centers with clean energy 24-7, But the deal doesn't require anything new to be built. Ontario is actually investing in more natural gas. This year, Ontario's entire clean energy credit system has been called a farce by the Canadian Climate Institute. The energy mix reports, quote, The province's new voluntary clean energy credit registry will allow companies to make their power, quote, look cleaner than it is at a time when the grid itself is getting dirtier would be so curious to see of like of course like dave you literally said they were backroom deals that were happening to privatize um uh puerto rican uh, the puerto rican electrical grid but um how much of those conversations were seated back in 2017 post hurricane maria when um when when we were seeing like widespread outages across across the islands yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it's, it's 2023 now. I literally just looked at my watch. That was ridiculous. It's 2023, but I'm sure these deals have been in motion since 2017 since, since Hurricane Maria, but that's just speculation on my part. From those two stories, there's like one warning, I think. 
um, which is that if you hand over the reins of your power grid to organizations whose primary goal is to make money, it will harm your climate goals. This Puerto Rico story is particularly depressing, uh, partially for the point you just made, Lauren, but also because it's just another point on the long, long list of injustices the United States has foisted upon the island uh, nation. And the OPG story is yet another reason reason to always be skeptical of carbon credits of any nature. Like on the show a year or two ago, we spoke about uh, what made Microsoft's climate commitments actually more interesting than most other organizations. But it's stories like this that show you that companies themselves are at the whims of those who create the credits. So maybe Microsoft really thought this was working and this was a great way of doing this, only to have it be revealed that actually nothing is being changed. And so it's you can't even even it, it just goes to show you that even when you want to believe or even when co- corporations are trying to maybe actually take real action again, I'm not saying that is Microsoft's in this case, I'm saying it's possible you still can get undermined by the fact that these types of credits are so easy to uh, to to create fictitious accounting to, to, calc- to calculate them. And so the actual decommissioning of fossil fuel extraction or burning must be the metric that we hold everyone to. And if there's one point I think you take from both this and our earlier conversation, it is that. We must decommission fossil fuels. The transition part of the just transition is important because <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah, no, that's the thing. The transition is going to happen regardless. It's, it's how much it sucks for us to experience that we have control over at this point. Um, and and just before we leave, I mean, like further to the point about um, about the carbon credit accounting snafu here, this is coming only weeks after we dug into another story that was like a big piece in the guardian and a big piece in a large number of, or in, in several different, um, climate and environment focused outlets that was looking at like the largest carbon, um, offset accounting firms in the world being, being shown to be fraudulent in their practices and in their accounting. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a flawed system and an example of a false solution up and down all around here, there, and everywhere. And that Puerto Rico thing is just is, is it's just an insanely blatant, like, colonial takeover by the by the states. They're like, let's have our company just run the entire grid privately now. <laughs> like, what do you... I mean, the, if you're going to do that, at least make Puerto Rico a state. You can't simultaneously reject statehood while, you know, while controlling that level of... Yeah, and they can just sell something that they need to live for whatever they want. Yeah, hey. As much as the states might like to say otherwise, they freaking love taxation without representation. It's like their fave thing. <laughs> That's why it's on the license plates in D.C. And now we will go to a short music break and return with Stefan speaking with David Camfield, author of The Future is Burning Like a Beast in Hell, Climate Solutions from a Wild it's not the name of the book. Century. Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change. There it is. The Green Majority. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. 
home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. here as previewed earlier on the show with author David Camfield, whose latest book is Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change. Thanks so much for being here, David. Thanks for having me on Green Majority Radio. So as a way of introduction, both to your work and the book, how do you sort of see the world today? And I can guess, you know, it's called Future on Fire. I can take some guesses, but how do you see where we are? I think we're in a, a very worrying place. And also heading in a very worrying direction because, you know, I think a lot of listeners to the show will know that if you look at, for example, Climate Action Tracker or any of the other places people can look to see where emissions are at and where they're likely to go and what that's going to mean for, for climate, we're heading towards somewhere close to probably around three degrees of heating above the pre-industrial average temperatures. By the time you get to the end of the century, you know, there's a range, but that's close enough. And that's part of a broader ecological crisis, or if you prefer, we can think about it as the, uh, the Anthropocene epoch. But there are all sorts of interconnected problems here. It's not just about global heating, it's also about the conditions being created for more pandemics. It's also about species extinction and all sorts of other ecological problems. And I think those things are not separate from, I mean, they're, they're distinct, but they're also connected in important ways to things like the increasing tensions that we're seeing between the US and China and the war in Ukraine is not the same problem. I'm not trying to reduce it all to a single thing, but they are really interconnected. And that's why you see you know, some people in mainstream circles starting to use this term polycrisis to talk about what's going on. I think there's some problems with that concept, but I think that gets at the, the way in which they're interconnected global problems, ecological, economic, you know, health, all these things are, are tied in together. And so I think we have lots of reasons to be very concerned. Yes, exactly. I think we do our best in the show to inform our listeners as to why they should be concerned all the time. Occasionally, we try to have some good news, but it's, it is tough to find out there at this current moment. But what I love doing with folks like yourself, who's sort of done some deep research for this book and in general, did you come across anything that you think people sort of miss about our current situation? Or is there something that you think that should be better highlighted you know, than it is? Well, it's funny because I did the research really a number of years ago. The book took a while to come out. But I do think that a couple of things I would just want to pull out, I guess maybe emphasize a couple of ideas that we may not pay enough attention to. One is the idea that a transition from fossil fuels is not the same thing as a transition, sorry, not the same thing as a just transition from fossil fuels, right? And I think there's a big difference because there certainly are signs of the development, not nearly fast enough, but the development of, of more renewable energy sources. But there are lots of ways that could continue and expand but be done in a way that doesn't do anything to reduce inequality and oppression in society. And, you know, in fact, it could be done in ways that make things worse in, in some ways. So I think that's one thing that we, you know, we should think more about than we often do. It's understandable why people, you know, looking at the need for transition off fossil fuels and the other, you know, things that are 
or fueling global heating, want to just focus on on that. But that's, I think, not enough. And I guess the other thing that's worth mentioning is that the development of more renewable energy is certainly not the same as the phasing out of fossil fuels, right? There are policies being put in place in the US, Canada, and elsewhere, which will probably lead to further development of, of clean energy sources, which are not being accompanied by the measures needed to actually phase out fossil fuels. And so that creates all sorts of risks, like the possibility that something like geoengineering will be kind of wheeled in to try to bring down emissions. But those are those are just a couple of things that I think we often don't pay enough attention to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that highlighting of power production is, you see massive spikes really in solar and wind and renewable energy. But you're right. It, when you actually look at the overall curve, coal has barely dropped. You know, oil hasn't really gone down. Most fossil fuel remains online. And yet, like renewable energy, maybe I think I saw a chart recently that renewable energy has now surpassed coal. But that doesn't mean that we're actually producing less carbon because coal is still almost steady. Like in the last 20 years, coal has almost remained steady across the world. And yet we sort of can, I think we can, in some ways, when we look for good news stories, we look for these stories of massive expansion of renewables because it's the closest to a good news story we have. But if that's not accompanied by the offlining of coal or oil or or, or fossil gas, okay, natural gas, then we're not going to get there, right? Like, so I think the idea that like being an energy maximalist without taking on actual fossil fuel reduction is is a slippery slope to failure. Yeah, I think that's well put. But cool. So, as I said earlier, there are many reasons to be sad, as we've just highlighted. But I think yourself and myself, I think most people who's in the show, are not really willing to give up. You know, we wouldn't be doing this work if we were giving up. If we were going to give up, we would just be like, cool, I'm going to go and be, you know, hang out on a cruise the rest of my life and be fine. But here we are, staying where we're at, trying to organize and fight for a better future. And so I do think sometimes it's worth interrogating and asking ourselves why. You know, like if if we do accept that we are not in a great place and we're going to perhaps darker places, why keep fighting? You know, what what is it that is worth saving? Yeah, I have a chapter in the book which is called Even a Ravaged Planet is Worth Fighting For, which is not my original line. It comes from something in the, the journal Salvage. But I think that's really true. I think that, you know, human life is valuable. The life of other species on the planet is valuable. And, you know, that is true, even if, you know, we're heading, even if we end up, you know, for example, say we end up in a situation where we're so fortunate as to plateau with global heating at, you know, 2.8 degrees of industrial level or something, which is a horrible scenario, but that's 2.8 is better than four, right? I mean, the, the difference is millions and millions, probably hundreds of millions of people's lives. And so I really think that as long as there's a human species, as long as we have societies, we need to fight to, you know, around the conditions that people live and die in. And so it's understandable why people will say things like, you know, two degrees or bust. And of course, we should do everything we can to try to limit heating as close to 1.5 degrees as possible, but I mean, as low as possible. But, you know, what we sometimes can talk about in terms of fractions of degrees translates into, you know, lives, the quality of life, and so on for huge numbers of people. And we, of course, know that the conditions with global heating will be far worse for people living in the countries of the global south, so-called. And in, you know, everywhere, 
the people with the least power in society will be worse affected. So if we care about the kind of lives that people are living now and will we'll live in the future, we should, I think we, we have an obligation, an ethical obligation to, to keep fighting and to try to you know, transform society. There are going to be all sorts of crises created by all sorts of upheavals in society as a result of where capitalism is taking us. And you know, those are, it's a, it's a cliche in some sense, but you know, there is an opportunity in, in crisis. There are opportunities for transformation. And I think we need to try to work towards seizing those things because human life is, and, and the lives of other species are, are all worth it. Yeah, for sure. And I think something that you said that that's worth highlighting as we sort of move to the next part of our conversation, which is sort of about how we solve this problem, is that point that in as it gets worse and as these crises become more clear, there is an easier and easier conversation to have with the general public about how everything's not okay. You know, like I think it, you could imagine it being harder in some times past where things were not as obvious, you know, where maybe... I, I honestly, I have personally haven't felt like I've lived through a part where it doesn't like I graduated into the 2008 housing crisis and destruction. So like the last 20 ish years or 10, 10, 15 years has not been great for trying to pretend that we're not in some ways having some problems. But I always sort of imagine the 80s being a time where maybe it felt like it outside of, of course, the Cold War and things like that. So maybe it never was true. But I certainly think at least in the do the pandemic and some of the other challenges and obviously the growing understanding of climate change definitely in some ways makes it more and more easy to have this conversation that like, look, what we're doing is not working. And so we must have change. And then the battle becomes how and what to do to change. And one of the first questions you ask in your book or in one of your chapters is literally about Basically, can we trust capitalism and sort of our, our our governments to to come up with a technocratic solution on climate? And and you your position, as I understand it, is that it will not. And I think part of that comes from your talk earlier about how you can very much imagine eco fascist approach that sol that that removes carbon from the atmosphere while taking some very horrible horrible other actions, but. Yeah. So what, why do you think and why do you see capitalism as sort of not being the answer and, and why we need a different approach? Well, capitalism as a way of organizing society is it's fossil capital. You can, you know, can imagine the capitalism without fossil fuels, but it's not as Ian Angus puts it this way in his book, Facing the Anthropocene, it's not an overlay. I mean, it's actually not, not at the very beginning of capitalism, but fairly soon after that, fossil fuels became central to how goods and services are produced, you know, on a, on a large scale. And capitalism, you know, is is a system that is organized in such a way that it inevitably is profit driven, and it will be driven to try to expand ever more and to accelerate the pace of production ever more. And that's because of the way it's driven by competition between between firms. And so that's just that's just the way capitalism is. You know, as the saying says, the system isn't broken; it was built this way. I just think that. Because of that, that, that's the underlying cause, you know, of the ecological crisis and of so many of the other problems that we that we face. And so, of course, governments can try to to pass policies that and, and take measures that regulate the the system. But there are limits to what can what what that can what that can do. And so, I think it's really important to try to push for changes that end end up doing what's necessary, but pushing against that logic of of capitalism and. That without that, without that, those kinds of coming from 
social movements of, of ordinary people globally will get responses to climate change and other problems that very much reflect the, you know, drive to protect the profits and, and power of the small number of people who are actually exercising the most control under capitalism. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, we'll get, and we'll get to social movements in a second, but I would, I would like first to sort of stick on this theme of hope, shall we say, that I'm going to keep going back to it a couple of times in this conversation. If we sort of see this, you know, that we're, you can't rely on our current versions of systems to do it. Where do you sort of see hope for a path forward? Right. So I think that hope really lies. Well, let me jump back a step, a step and just say, some people would say I'm not very hopeful, but I think it's hopeful simply to say the door is not closed, right? Against people who say we're utterly doomed and there's no doubt about it. I say that the door, you know, that there's still, the door is partially open. There's still light shining through. And the, what people do in large numbers can make a difference. So I think that, I think that's a really important lesson to take from history. If you look at all sorts of social struggles, there've been times where forms of oppression that looked like they were unshakable were shaken and broken, right? And so I think there's hope because I'm, I'm convinced from my study of history that the future will involve all sorts of, of upheavals where large numbers of people will start trying to take action collectively to address the problems that they face. And therein lies the possibility for making all sorts of far-reaching changes. And so that's you know, it doesn't mean there won't be enormous difficulties and challenges, but I do think that we can at least be confident that it's that our future is going to involve those kinds of opportunities as as well as many things that are really terrifying. For sure. And so with that, yeah. So what do you see? Like how do we how do we start building it? How do we begin to to move in that direction? Okay, so I mean, the book opens with, and it's kind of a, an argument for Naomi Klein's line that only mass social movements can save us now. But you can't conjure a mass social movement out of thin air, right? It's, no one's got one waiting in their back pocket or the, you know, the, the key that will unlock the, the door magically. And anybody who claims to have the easy recipe is selling you something, right? So I think what we can try to do where we are is to try to foster the ways of organizing that have the potential to contribute to future social movements, right? And when other, when unpredicted eruptions happen, when people go into motion on a big scale, we can then throw ourselves into those opportunities and try to do what we can to take advantage of the situation. I, I'll just mention one that I think is really interesting. And that's what happened in France at the end of 2018 and early 2019, the, the so-called Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vests movement, which was began in response to a a government neoliberal, you know, so-called green tax on, on diesel fuels. And this, you could imagine a popular wave of protest and direct action against that kind of thing, really moving in a very right-wing direction. But in fact, it didn't. There were attempts by people on the far right to do that in France. But instead, it really became much more a protest against social inequality, injustice, and also around the failure to do what was needed around climate change. And that was because, in, in part... Uh, large numbers of people on the left, supporters of climate justice, threw themselves into this upheaval, which drew on, you know, it was powered by a lot of people in uh, semi-rural areas or small or smaller towns. It wasn't coming out of the center of Paris and out of public sector workers and people who'd been at the center of previous anti-austerity fights. But all sorts of other people, working class and other low-income people, 
got involved in these protests, which were very confused in lots of ways. But people got involved, people who had an analysis that could help them help other people connect how they were finding life difficult with an understanding of, you know, austerity and, and these other other problems. And in that way, this movement went in a, you know, a much more positive direction. And again, I'm not trying to say there weren't any contradictions and difficulties, but I think that that is something we can expect to see more of. That's very different than the convoy protests of early 2022, right? That was run by the far right from the start or really directed by it. But we're going to see, I think, more unpredictable, unforeseen protests and, and forms of revolt, which are going to be you know, ideologically, politically pretty confused in some ways. And sometimes they might be at risk of being driven to the right, but they also can go in, in other ways. If people who have a different analysis of, of capitalism, climate change so, and oppression can, can be involved and help people who haven't encountered that kind of analysis before to to understand their, you know, conditions that way and who can help, you know, answer questions about how to take the movement forward. You know, what can we do next? People who have experience in other social movements or know something about the history of these things who can be constructive participants, right? I want to stress that people have to go in not thinking that they have all the answers in advance, but being willing to, you know, to learn, but also to argue. And you know, I'm convinced that there will be more of those kinds of of situations and supporters of climate justice need to be ready for the unexpected and to not write things off just because it doesn't look like the former protests that we want or the ones that we've seen in the past. And I think there'll be all sorts of opportunities, hopeful opportunities in those kinds of peoples in the future. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it connects back to sort of what we were talking earlier about how, as things get worse, more and more people will sort of begin to acknowledge and understand that the system we have is broken. And then they may not have any built-in ideology as how to fix it. You know, they may just be acknowledging the brokenness of the systems. And and then the question of how we solve them becomes, you know, so specific. Like here in Toronto, for example, I think perhaps the most galvanizing support and, and pushback that we've seen in the pandemic outside of sort of the anti-vax movement was for was for homeless people in encampments, like consistently time and time again. That has been something that I think was not really in the conversation as much pre-pandemic, but now has really come to the fore again and again and again, in part because you know, COVID made it so much more dangerous to be in shelters. So they became, so people became more visible. And then the violent crackdown became so much more visible that so many more people now, I think, are more connected into that sort of scene and, and, and acknowledge how broken our systems are, you know, for taking care of people who are currently, you know, experiencing some form of homelessness. And that is, it comes with an ideology of, you know, housing now. But the sort of how it connects to the rest of the rest of the thing, and but also like you know you could imagine a protest that comes out against that, right? Like th it is a dividing line in some ways, and and how we decided to take care of these people is an indication for how we will we should take care of you know say climate refugees or other people who are displaced for any number of reasons that are displaced for the same reasons you know that we see you know capitalism and expectations on our refusal to take care of people who are not in our economic system really but but yeah so so that's 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 a very interesting sort of take on 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 mass movements and sort of the way of how we sort of need to start paying attention to the increasing numbers of different ones we might see um yeah i think and i just think we have to recognize that you know just because there isn't a big upsurge happening 
where you're living now doesn't mean that we can't be finding things to do that are maybe much lower key, but which can tr contribute to whether it's tenant organizing or yeah, organizing around you know the needs of the unhoused or what whatever it, it might be, the rising cost of living. There are all sorts of ways that people can be involved. And it doesn't have to be about climate. I guess that's the most important message. Even if your starting point in terms of the things that you care about the most or the things that people might be more feeling political about have to do with climate justice, we can be involved and bring that climate justice perspective into anything, right? And because of the interconnections that that exist. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that for all of these, the, the talk of mass movement and for all of the talk about what we sort of, where we sort of are, it is very helpful. And we've been trying to talk about it as much as we can on the show to have a, a positive vision, you know, a vision that says, this is what we could be doing instead. Cause I, cause it, you know, if it gives you something to strive for. And so I'm curious, how do you envision a just and climate safe future? Well, I just want to flag a book that came out since I wrote my book, which is the, the End of This World, which I know people who listen to this podcast regularly will have heard about. This is published by Between the Lines, written by together by six people. And there was an episode, I guess, where you had some of those authors on to talk about that book. And what's neat about The End of This World is that it's trying to lay out a climate justice vision for so-called Canada, you know, specific to, to this place. My book was written for readers in, not just in Canada, but the U.S., the UK and, and elsewhere. So it's not specific that way. But I think, you know, that book would be the single you know, thing that I would point people to if you want to read some, I think, really thoughtful reflection on how we could be bringing out the kinds of, bringing about the kinds of changes that, that we need to, to make. But I think the whole idea of a just transition understood in a broad sense, so not just about, you know, what happens for people who have been working in the fossil fuel industry who need to move to new forms of, of work, but more broadly, a transition away from fossil fuels that's done in a way that doesn't leave anybody behind, that actually reduces inequality and, and oppression. That's you know the kind of positive vision that we need to be putting forward, one where the quality of life for the majority of people is, is improved. There are all sorts of different dimensions for that, but I, I think that that's, that's the vision that we need. I think that more challenging is to make that seem possible people, right? Because there's one thing to sketch out an appealing vision, but the problem is if it seems just like a castle in the sky, then that's not going to have the resonance that it needs. And so I think one of the challenges is to try to build stronger workplace and community movements and organizations so that people actually can begin to have more of a sense that it's possible to act collectively and to win changes in society that would be good because that sense of possibility will then increase people's willingness to fight for this kind of vision of climate justice, right? And it won't just be seen as, as a pie in the sky thing. And I think that's what, that's why social movements are a crucial bridge. We need to actually, you know, fight around the things that are affecting people in the here and now in a way that builds collective power and gives people the sense that you can, you know, defeat attacks and win positive changes. So that's why, you know, something is like the, the education worker strike in Ontario in late 2022 is so important. When you saw a group of unionized workers who had a lot of public support really seriously fighting to win, even if maybe the outcome wasn't what it could have been. But those kinds of struggles are really important for giving people the sense that it is actually possible to fight for and, and win a better society. Yeah, that, sure. that, that, that's the bridge that we need. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you brought that up because that was such a fascinating. It's the only time we've really seen this government back down at all. 
right? Like they've they've gone around trampling on every single right using the notwithstanding clause, however they like, doing whatever they like. And it was interesting for that one moment, you could tell that they were scared. Like there was a there was a conversation going on about not just their strikes, but what other strikes you could see, how else that might happen. And it was the one time that within what, like a week or less, the the government that has basically ignored everything that they've promised to do or trampled of anyone's rights as much as they like back down. Yeah. Some people, I know a lot of people sort of wish they went a little bit further and got, got, got more out of that. And that we sort of use that as a more galvanizing moment, which is fair, but still for that moment, it is and should remind us honestly of the power that do we do have, you know, to go back to your example of I, one thing I was fascinated by is the more recent protests in, in Europe where, or sorry, in France specifically, where they cut off power. Like, what a what a flex. What a flex of union power to cut off the electricity to the decision makers like housing and neighborhoods to protest there. And then I think they gave the rest free to everybody else. Like, it was one of these examples of like, we run this place, right? And, it, and it's so hard to imagine, you know, us in Canada realizing fulsomely that the people and the workers actually run things where, and that was such a particular example of them being like, what are you going to do? We are, we are the power company, this entire set of people are the power company. And so we can demand what we want to demand. And you have to listen to us in a way that, you know, we're so often here stuck just asking nicely and hoping for better and then gearing up for the next, you know, the next election and then we do or don't get it. And then you you, know, you get a Doug Ford in power who just used notwithstanding clause to ignore every law we possibly have. And we all just sort of roll over. Yeah. So it is true that we have to see those bridges. We have to see those moments where we can prove that like we do have power to actually really cause change. Yeah. I think it's those examples like the, you know, the, the struggle in Ontario late last year and the one you just mentioned in France, like these are really precious and we can't repeat them too often. Like we need to do whatever we can to you know, publicize that these things happen. And you no, know, these are not things from 50 or 100 years ago. These are things happening in our time. And it's important for giving our giving us a, a, the horizon that we need in a sense of what is actually possible. And so that we can work towards it, even if we're not able to, you know, to do that right now. Like, obviously, there's there are huge gaps, but we need to kind of use those examples because they're more powerful than any arguments in general terms about the power of the working class, for example, right? If you can actually get down to talk about these specific examples that'll have more impact. Yeah, for sure. And so folks are looking, maybe not for more examples, but for to to learn more about your book and and what you've got here, how can they find the book and follow along with your work? Okay, so the book in Canada is available from Fernwood Publishing and to many independent bookstores as well, rest of the world through PM Press based in, in the US. I am not on Twitter. People cannot follow me that way. I am on Facebook, but, and I, you know, I write from time to time in publications like Briar Patch, Midnight Sun, and so on, as well as my academic work. So yeah, that's where, how people can look me up. Amazing. And so our tradition is to give our guests the last word of the show. So in a second, I'll throw back to you to give you a second to speak to our listeners more generally, anything you want to highlight or, or talk to them about. But before I do, thank you so much author David Camfield, whose latest book is Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change. Thank you so much for being on the show. And yeah, any last thoughts? 
yeah, just maybe I didn't make clear enough earlier was just the, my book doesn't try to actually say that much about what climate justice or just transition would in, would involve. And that's why I'm really glad that the book, The End of This World, has come out. It really just asks the question, how could we actually win it? That's what it's really focused on. And so I'm hoping that if the book does anything, it contributes to conversations people have about strategy, because I think that we need to be having more of those about how we can actually win what we need.